One of the arguments that we contend with over here at Lithos Cry is that contemporary Christian music, especially Christian rock and Christian metal, is nothing more than just worldliness propped up to look godly. Based upon your research and working on this project, how much validity is there to that argument? With us this evening is Marshall Terrell. He is the author of the book, The Jesus Music, a book that accompanies a documentary film by the same name. Marshall, thank you so much for taking the time to interview with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So before we dive into a discussion concerning your book and contemporary Christian music, can you tell us a little bit about your personal music journey. What kind of music did you enjoy listening to growing up? And one, what type of music do you enjoy listening to today? Well, my tastes have not changed in 40 or 50 years. Um, I, when, when I was about 10 years old, there, was a, there were two double albums that came out called The Beatles, 1962 through 66, and The Beatles, 1967 through 70. And my older brother, Michael, about four years older than myself, had these albums and was playing them. And I was listening. I was like, I know these songs from somewhere. But keep in mind, I was 10 years old. So I didn't have a frame of reference for anything. And so I was listening to these songs and I was just going crazy. And I loved it. And uh, then the, the next album that I bought was Sgt. Pepper. And then from there, it was just full on. I mean, I was, I was a complete Beatles freak. Um, and then, of course, when I... Got a little bit older, I got into the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin and all the great rock of the 60s and 70s. So, uh, and, and I call myself a music snob because I was raised on that music. And so to me, anything that comes after that just doesn't compete. So I've been very uh, myopic in my uh, musical taste with the exception of, I think, Collective Soul, who I'm friends with, skipped a generation. And uh, they, they produce a same similar sound as the Beatles in terms of melody and arrangements. So it's 60s and 70s in Collective Soul, and that's about it. What is your favorite Beatles song? Well, that's tough because, you know, they're such an incredible band. you got to pick 10. <clears throat> <laughs> I'm going to play at my funeral. It's going to be In My Life. Um, and then, of course, uh, I love the song Rain which is the B-side to Paperback Writer. Um, and, I, I, you know, I, I constantly find myself listening to the White Album and Revolver. And I hate to say it. It sounds terrible. It sounds tacky. I love their drug face. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people that I've come across that really do enjoy the Beatles during that phase. I mean, either way, either either high or off drugs, they were great musicians. Either way that you cut it. I mean, uh, my mom was a 
she was into Beatlemania when she was uh, in college and, and growing up. She was all into that. And you go through her record collection, you can find every Beatles album that ever came out. And uh, it's kind of interesting because it jumped from Beatles to ABBA. And we had ABBA playing in the house all the time uh, when I was growing up. So let's talk about the book, The Jesus Music. How were you selected to write this book that accompanies the documentary film by the same name? Well, I knew the the Irwin brothers, the, the folks who directed um, this movie, through a documentary that we worked on called Steve McQueen, um, American Icon. And that was, uh, when I say I worked on, I, I executive produced it. I, I brought the people in, interviewed them. Um, and of course, they shot this incredibly beautiful film. Um, and at you know, at that point, I was like, "Wow, these guys are good. The, these uh, the way they cut it, the way they put it together, and the way it looks. I mean, uh, just beautiful cinematography." Um, so I worked with them on that, and then we worked it together again on a documentary that hasn't come out yet. It's called. It's going to be on Johnny Cash. So um, then I got a phone call out of the blue. Um, from one of the producers, Joshua Walsh. And he told me, this was during the pandemic, hey, we're about three quarters finished with a new documentary we're doing called Jesus Music. And it's about the history of contemporary Christian music. And we'd like you to write a companion book. And I said, honestly, Josh, I don't know anything about CCM. I really don't. I said, I know everything about, you know, classic rock and roll. And he said, hey, you know, we're gonna send you some rough cuts of the film so that you can see what the story arc is, and then you can write it based on that. So I thought, okay, easy enough. And so as I started writing the book, and I saw these rough cuts, uh, I was really enthralled by the storyline because, um, you know, the, the, the main thing that hooked me was the fact that they were chronicling um, Christian artists who had failures in, in their personal life. And uh, sometimes it was ugly, it was messy. And I think people really relate to that. And I related to that. So um, after a while, I really started getting into it. I started, so I took what they wrote with the story arc and then I kind of went off on my own and did some other things to make the book just a little bit different than the movie. Um, so that's that's how that, that project got started. So when you started this, you were only vaguely familiar with CCM and the Jesus movement. How did this vague familiarity with the topic actually assist you rather than hinder you in the writing process? Well, when I was growing up, I mean, we, you know, I come from a Christian household. And so coming of age in the 70s, a lot of that Jesus music movement drifted into our church. And um, after every church service, we would go to the Christian bookstore. And um, so there was like this whole groundswell that was happening. There was the music. There was uh, movies, there was um, books. I can remember um, going to the Christian bookstore and getting The Hiding Place, um, The Cross and Switchblade, Run Baby Run. And believe it or not, last night I had dinner with a lady by the name of Cookie Rodriguez, who um, did a book called Please Make Me Cry. And wow. it was the first time I saw her since I was 10 years old. And we just started talking about that whole era. And so I, I grew up with that firsthand. So I had that firsthand knowledge of the Jesus movement. Um, but what I didn't know until I saw the rough cuts was how it started. So uh, I had some vague familiarity with it. And of course, my mom played a lot of the uh, early Jesus music uh, folks, Evie Tornquist, uh, Bill Gaither, 
and a lot of Andre Crouch. This was a mammoth undertaking for you to do. I understand there was a tight deadline for you to write this book in and you cover, I've read the book. I've read it. It's, I absolutely love it. And it covers 50 years of the history of contemporary Christian music. It's very thought provoking, a lot of insights, a lot of things I didn't know. So in starting this big project, how did you determine where you're going to start your research? Well, you know, when you say it was mammoth, it was mammoth for the film producers because they interviewed 200 people. Oh, wow. Oh, so I got I got the best. I got the. So they were sending me these rough cuts. So, again, I already knew what the story arc was going to be. So that part that was easy. What I had to decide was like who to leave in, who to leave out, um, which rabbit hole to go down um, and, you know, where where to go. So. It was really, it, I wouldn't say it was an easy project, but it was, I had it much easier uh, than, than the Irwin brothers and Joshua Walsh. So they've got so much more material. Um, and uh, I want to, uh, I hope I can, I'm going to turn this uh, camera over to my um, paperwork where I printed out all the um, interviews. And okay. this, this is all the, I hope you can see this. Hold on a sec. Uh, let's see. Am I getting there? Yeah, you are. That is a stack of paper. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look at this. Hey, hey, Rolling Stones. <laughs> the Beatles. There's the Beatles. Yep. And there's John Lennon. Look at that. There's look Collect at that. Nice. And then there's uh, Steve McQueen. Oh, wow. You got a sweet <laughs> setup over there, man. <laughs> that is sweet. Yeah. So, um, you can tell I really do love music. I love rock and roll. Um, but yeah, that, that, that stack of paper, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that I, I wasn't able to do more, but, uh, we were on such a time crunch. So yeah. I, I had three months to write it, but what I like to do when I write books is I like to give myself a month to edit. And okay. sweet. So I wrote it in two months and then a, a full month of editing and, and sweetening and deciding what to leave in and what to leave out. So yeah, it, it was, it was, um, it, it, it was, it was a busy project, but it was a fun project. I really, I probably had more fun on this project than I have on any other book. Well, definitely. It's something that you're passionate about, the music and the rock and roll. And I have to ask this question because writing is such an arduous task. How did you discipline yourself to take two months to do that? Did you have people slide quesadillas under the door <laughs> while you were writing or or what? <laughs> you know, it, it, it wasn't that once you get started, it's like this snowball effect, you know, you push that snowball uphill and then you get to a point where it just goes downhill and you're just, you're catching that wave. So I was telling somebody the other day, so when I'm doing a book, um, I'll write every day. And I keep in mind, I have a full-time job. I work at Arizona state university. So after work, you know, I'll come home at five, I'll have dinner and about six o'clock till about nine o'clock. I'll write three hours a night. Um, I'll take off a Friday, but then I'll, then I'll work. Um, Cause by Friday I'm pretty tired. Uh, I'll spend a whole Saturday and about half of a Sunday and um, Monday through Wednesday, I can get a chapter done. Um, and then um, so I could do about two to three chapters a week. And so once you get on that, that track, then, you know, you, you know, you're, you're running and you're going pretty good. So um, and the, the other key is I have a great editor, so I'll send the material to him. He'll edit it as I finish it. And clean it up a lot, you know, to usually when you're on the time constraint you, or if you're not on the time constraint, you you edit it much later. But 
I, I was slipping in these chapters and editing as we went along. He cleaned up a lot of it to the point where when I got done, you know, it was like getting a fifth draft as opposed to a first draft. So those wow. are all the trades that you learn along the way. Wow, that takes a lot of discipline to do that. And it's very, very impressive, especially, as I said, I've read the book. It's very well put together, very well thought out and extremely, extremely thought provoking. And I want to talk about some thought provoking things right now, because one of the arguments that we contend with over here at Lithos Cry is that contemporary Christian music, especially Christian rock and Christian metal, is nothing more than just worldliness propped up to look godly. Based upon your research and working on this project, how much validity is there to that argument? You know, I don't I don't believe that at all. Um, these are artists that have labeled themselves as Christian artists. And I wouldn't say they have pigeonholed themselves, but they have labeled themselves as Christian artists. And, uh, you know, they are sticking by that. So, um, you know, just by the declaration that they're that they're CCM artists, I mean, that to me, that's that says a whole lot. So, um, and then of course, uh, the way they live their lives, the way that um, they conduct themselves. I mean, it's it's the whole thing. So, I mean, for for someone to say, well, uh, because that's not the shortcut. The shortcut is rock and roll. If you want to make money, if you want to make a living, the shortcut is not to declare yourself a CCM artist. So, I have a lot of respect for those people. That's something that really became evident to me in the book is the sacrifice that these people put into what they did, pouring into their passion, their art form and what they believe in. And the personal hurt that a lot of them had to go through with the accusations that were thrown at them, especially the guys from Petra, the guys from Striper, when they were doing what God had put in them to do and the criticism that they were getting. So who would you say are the harshest critics of CCM? Would you say that it's the faith-based community or would you say that it's people outside of the faith-based community? You know, uh, I interviewed John Schlitt from Petra and what he said was, you know, he he th he thought he was going to get, um, you know, uh, bitten by the secular community, but he said what really hurt was the fact that most of the criticism came from the faith-based community, and then um, there was a there's a gentleman I, whose name escapes me that was um, interviewed in in the movie and in the book and quoted in the book. He said, you know, um, I've I've. He, and he's a therapist for artists. He said, I've dealt with the country artists. I've dealt with rock artists. Um, and those audiences are quicker to forgive than the faith-based world. So, uh, but I, what I don't, what I don't want to say is that it's that way now. It was that way then. Okay. I'm not so sure it is that way now because when that was happening, we're talking about the eighties. And so we're talking about, you know, elders in the church and, 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 um, and, Tell, televangelists that were just starting out in the 80s that needed fodder for for whatever that they chose to criticize. So I, I feel like that ha maybe has changed um, in the in in the in the last 40 years. So I, I really do believe that. Yeah, that's that was very interesting to me reading that point in the book, especially about Jerry Falwell. I'm a Liberty University graduate myself. How 
he was against it at first and then all of a sudden, you know, he embraced it and even um, the 700 Club with Pat Robertson and started to embrace it. And then all of a sudden we have DC Talk coming out of Liberty University. We have Mark Lowry coming out of Liberty University as well and and how that has shifted in, in a lot of places. Why do you think CCM has been so controversial? And why do you think that even today, there there is still a little bit of controversy that, that we do contend with over here on this end. Why, why do you think there's all this controversy over it? Well, I, I think it's just, uh, I think the faith-based world wants to um, compare it to secular music, and then the secular world gets down on it as inferior. So it seems like CCM kind of gets it from both sides. The biggest surprise, frankly, was the fact that it caught up to the secular music world. Um, again, I'm one of those rock music snobs. And so, the, but the way that I see things is that um, professionally speaking, CCM really got its start in 1972. And 1972, as a recent uh, CNN documentary pointed out, that was the height of the rock and roll era. That was uh, more people were attending rock concerts and sporting events. It uh, grossed $8 billion um, in revenue, uh, which surpassed the movie industry, if you can believe that. And in 72, wow. the movie industry had movies like The Godfather, Deliverance, The Poseidon Adventure, Cabaret. I mean, it was a great year for cinema, but music far outpaced it. So, um, so the year 1972 was interesting as a great marker because that's when Explo 72 occurred. And that's when Billy Graham had given uh, contemporary Christian music and the Jesus movement his stamp of approval, which he also did again when rap started coming in and DC talk started coming in to, to play. But the way I saw it was, so the starting point for CCM really is 1972. And then by the 90s, uh, I mean, they, 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 they were always kind of following secular music in terms of trends, in terms of the sound of music. And by the time you get to the 80s, I'm sorry, the 90s, they both have kind of caught up to each other. Or I should say CCM has caught up to, to uh, to secular music in terms of sales, in terms of exposure. Now there's crossover. Amy Grant's, you know, on on um, the Tonight Show. She's selling out the LA Forum, which was only reserved for big acts like Van Halen. I remember Paul McCartney and Wings, and there's 76 tour. That was their last set of shows. Um, the Eagles. Um, so she was on par with those folks. That's pretty. That's pretty amazing. So, but so. And then, of course, then we get to the new millennium, and then everything changes, and and, and yes. there's a little uh, uh, bit of technology that levels both industries, and then they're both <laughs> at the, they're both at the same playing field again. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's amazing how that happened with Napster, and it just kind of blew everything right up, and. Now, you know, it's the level playing field for everybody. And that's one of the things that I enjoy is working with artists now that are not very prominent. I, I do get to work with some of them and they're making their way through this new medium now and on that level playing field. So in your research, which CCM artists have you found to be the most inspiring, not just because of their message, but really because of the sacrifice and what they gave personally to help advance this art form mm, well there's there's several levels of that you know i mean we have to first credit larry norman i think who is perhaps the godfather of ccm um and he he helped perfect that rock star 
quality that he brought to CCM. Um, and then, but then, you know, somebody has to follow them and then they take, take it to another higher level. And then of course that was Amy Grant. Yes. Um, and then, after, you know, but, and, and I find it interesting uh, that, that she is like the biggest selling star of, of CCM and it's not even close. I mean, the se- the second closest I think is uh, uh, Michael W. Smith, and but you know her sales compared to his, it's, it's not even close. So, uh, you know, with with the secular rock world, it's this macho, always guys dominating. But in CCM, you know, it it's it's uh, she is uh, she is the, the top person. So I I find that interesting. Um, and then now a lot of these um, new artists, I mean, I don't know if you could consider them new, but people like Toby Mac and Lecrae and Lauren Daigle, they're now taking it to another new level. Yeah. So, you know, it's always, it's like that old saying, you stand on the shoulders, you know, of uh, the people that came before you. Yeah. There's always a foundation that's been built before you. Uh, get to do what you do. And it's interesting how you mentioned Amy Grant, because the first time I ever heard or saw Amy Grant was in the 80s. I was a teenager and I was watching the Christmas tree lighting at the White House in Washington, D.C. And she performed live Wonderful Counselor. I wasn't even a believer yet. And I was like, that was awesome. And that performance that she did still sticks in my mind. And I've always had deep admiration for, for Amy Grant since I saw that. That was back in the 80s. And there she was at the White House, you know, and that just shows how things have evolved for CCM. So now that you've been exposed to a wide array of genres of CCM and a wide array of artists, which would you say is your favorite artist or genre in CCM? Well, I can definitely tell you my favorite genre is the Jesus movement, because that's what I grew up with and knew. Um, And I I like the fact that these pioneers were just, you know, they, they wanted, they wanted to create a new music, and they wanted their own thing, you know, and they, but they didn't know quite what it was, what they were looking for, but they created it. And out of these church basements evolved a multi-billion dollar industry. And it just, it wouldn't have come had it been not, not been for the pioneers. But, you know, given that, again, we, we talked about how, you know, people standing on the shoulders of other people, the, the, the just the evolution of the industry fascinates me, you know. You know, as it goes from it goes from Jesus music to and here's a person that's often overlooked in CCM. That's B.J. Thomas. He was the first mainstream artist that decides that he's going to get into Christian music and puts a nice slick polish and and, and a pop sound on it and kind of carries that all the way to the 80s where then you have Amy Grant. And so um, uh, it's just an interesting, fascinating evolution to watch. B.J. Thomas was one of my favorites as a young child. Um, I had a little radio that you would wind up and it played Raindrops Keep Falling on Your Head. And that was one of my favorite songs. And whenever it came on the radio, I'd start to flip out. So, And I did not know that B.J. Thomas crossed over into CCM. I had no idea until I read your book. That was very eye-opening for me. I was like, oh, wow, that is so cool. So one of the other things that I really appreciate about your book is you spend a lot of time in the first chapter describing the cultural context from which CCM was born. And 
Can you give us a brief synopsis of that cultural context? And do you see any similarities between then when CCM was born and the time that we're living in today? Well, I'll answer the, the last question first. That was, I absolutely see a huge parallel between what's happened now and what's going on in the sixties. As a matter of fact, my mom's still with us. So she's 81. And, and a lot of people that are older, I asked them, I said, Hey, do you see parallels? And they said, yeah, not, not only do I see parallels, but it's worse today than it was back in the sixties, which is hard to imagine because I remember reading about the sixties as a kid and thinking, Oh man, what a terrible time that must've been and how, you know, this go our government was almost going to be overthrown. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, here we are, January 6th, we almost have our, you know, uh, we have our state capital, uh, our, our, our nation's capital uh, being invaded. Um, and so we see that. We see full-scale riots everywhere. We see, uh, you know, craziness. Um, and I, I would have thought that I would have never seen that in my lifetime. Um, so the roots of CCM can be traced probably, you know, to, uh, to, to, to uh, John F. Kennedy and the, his assassination, because um, that's when this, this, this root of discontent started taking place. And all throughout the 60s, um, you know, it, it starts to snowball with Vietnam and it starts to snowball with protests and, you know, what's going on in college campuses. And uh, as a matter of fact, you know, like I said, I work on a college campus and, um, you know, I saw a major protest just the other day in person as I was trying to get it on my building. So, um, you know, again, I go back to it's just uh, I see so much of today and what happened. And let's say let's just pinpoint that to, to 1968, all the craziness that was going on then. So um, that's how CCM evolved from all that discontent. You know, so so, you know, maybe perhaps. Um, um, there'll be some great new music that evolves out of this. That was going to be my next question to you is because we see so many parallels right now, do you think we're going to see another revolution in Christian music? And based upon your research and everything you've been looking at and analyzing, I love putting on the scholar's cap here doing <laughs> this. Um, what do you think it's going to look like? What do you think this revolution is going to look like if there is another one in Christian music? Or do you think it's already started? You know, it's it's really tough to put your finger on when things happen, when a movement is occurring. Uh, I always say for myself, it takes a good 10 years in looking back to start formulating and tracing uh, history. Um, so, but I will say as a kid, I remember when disco music came out, I was telling everybody how crazy this would be and how 30 years later we would look back and say, boy, that was a terrible fad. <laughs> but I digress. Um, I, and I actually like disco music now. That's the funny thing. I hated it. I hated it because I was a rock snob. Uh, and now I like it because it just brings me back to a time that was just kind of fun and light. Um, but to get back to your point, it's really tough to pinpoint when, when movements are happening. I think the, 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 the last movement we had in CCM is the technology one with Napster and how it leveled uh, – uh, both industries, both the secular and and CCM, and so um, uh, and again, we could only really see that it, Napster was about twenty years ago. So, to my point, you know, it takes a good ten years to really figure out kind of like where we are in terms of history. 
it's kind of one of those things where you have to look back at it and then realize it was a movement. Is is that the case, really? Exactly. Well, well, one of the people that that were that were was quoted in the book, um, uh, a gentleman in a second chapter of Acts, says, "You know, when you're when you're a pioneer, you don't know you're a pioneer when you're doing it because you're basically." You know, you're starving, and and you're you know you're you're dry. You're you're hoping that there's enough uh, money in the collection plate uh, for gas to get back home. Um, so you know they they they'll smile and they say, "Yeah, pioneer," but you know didn't know I was a pioneer then. <laughs> now you're you're a starving artist at that point in time <laughs> is is really what it comes down to. So why would you say that it's important that both the faith based community and those not part of the faith based community understand? the Jesus movement and understand the history of CCM. Why is this book, the Jesus music and the documentary important to our culture as a whole? Well, I think it's just a simple, uh, it, because it, it, it is history. Um, I didn't look at this book as, as doing the, uh, history of CCM. I looked at it as this is history and pop culture. This is, um, um, you know, this is another, this is another legitimate genre. Um, people will be writing history books about rap. They'll be right. Obviously they've written a lot about rock. Um, they've written some about disco and CCM is definitely a genre in and of itself. And, and now that we kind of know the history of it, we have to respect, um, what, what has occurred and respect the sacrifices that people made because the, the sacrifices just weren't made by artists. Um, they're also made by executives who took chances. And, um, and I'll even go as far to say um, executives at secular music labels who set up uh, CCM labels because they knew that there was money to be had. And, you know, pe people always talk negatively about money, but it's what kind of keeps the engine going. And it, and it, it helps fuel the fire for uh, others to come along and uh, for the industry to get bigger and, and to get better. Yeah, it takes money to get stuff done, doesn't it? <laughs> sure, there's all the way from guitar strings to uh, you know uh, uh, to uh, to jets and limousine. That's that's what I say. And, and by the 1990s, um, it became a jets and limousine world in CCM. Yeah. And but the funny thing is, it's it really I don't know if it's that way any longer. I don't think it is because in in the movie, um, there's an exchange between Amy Grant and Michael J. Smith at the end of the film where they're talking about, Oh, remember the good old days? Remember when there was like mailbox money? Remember when we were selling lots of CDs? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. So it's, it's funny to hear these two people who probably made more money um, in CCM than anyone else. And they're, they're talking about the good old days. Yeah. It's really interesting you say that because with one of the major bands that I've had the privilege of working with, uh, with our rock fest in Charleston, when they came, I was watching them move their own amps and equipment up oh. on the stage. And I'm like, this is so totally that's, different from what it used to be. <laughs> that's painful to hear. <laughs> it's different. And they were just like, Hey, we just want to play and we want to minister. That's, that's what this is about. And, uh, it was just really amazing to watch that. And they didn't, you know, there wasn't a complaint about it at all. It's just, 
this is the way it is. And we want to get our art out and we want to minister to people. I'm like, that's, that's awesome. Of course we did have helpers to help them, but they, you know, did a lot of the work on their own. So speaking of work, you're back to work on another book right now. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Give us a sneak peek of what you're, what you're working on. Yeah. I just finished the photo caption section and, and the book is essentially done now and it's with Greg Laurie and, uh, it's called Lennon, Dylan, Alice, and Jesus. And it's a look at uh, the spiritual uh, lives of rock stars through the decades. So we'll examine people like Elvis, Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins, um, everybody who might have been a rock star who became a Christian. So and then we, we, we look at, uh, I mean, there was a period there where John Lennon, believe it or not, was a born-again Christian. It wasn't a very long period, but... Um, um, we examine that. That's that's an entire chapter. We 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 uh, do an entire chapter on Bob Dylan. If you recall, he did three gospel infused albums uh, back in the late seventies and early eighties. And so, um, uh, you know that that's that's one to look out for in May. So that was uh, that was another fun project to do. And what is the title of that book again? It's called Lennon, Dylan, Alice, and Jesus. And Alice is for Alice Cooper, who many people might not know is a really devoted, dedicated born again, Christian, good guy. And he lives here in Phoenix. Um, and, uh, our family knows his, but beyond that, he just does so much for the community that people would not know. Um, they'll know in this book what he's like now, but, um, he's a very, very dedicated Christian. He is. And I was sharing this story with you a couple days ago. I was going on a church retreat with several pastors. This was many years ago. And on the way in the van, one of the pastors started reading this beautiful writing about the beauty of prayer and seeking the Father's face and just read it. It was like, Glenn, who do you think wrote that? I was like, oh, it had to be Charles Spurgeon. He's like, no. I was like, uh, David Wilkerson? No. I was like, Jonathan Edwards? He's like, no, Alice Cooper wrote it. And that's when my eyes started to really open. I was like, whoa, God is a lot bigger and more mysterious and moves in a lot more ways than I think in my my tiny mind. And that's when my mind started to expand a little bit. And I've always had a great deal of respect for Alice Cooper and uh, a lot of the videos that he puts on YouTube as well, talking about his faith. It's just so refreshing to hear. Marshall, before we close, do you have anything else that you would like to share with us this evening? Um, nothing that I can think of off the top of my head. Oh, wait, I do. The, the book and the DB are packaged together now, and that comes out tomorrow. And that's in all Walmarts, uh, across the nation. So, uh, great timing. Perfect timing. So you can get the Jesus music, the book and the DVD and package, uh, at Walmart, a total package set. Marshall, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed this interview and I'm looking forward to your next book. I am definitely going to read that book. Thank you. Hey, it was so much fun. Thank you. Thank you. Get Revelation Rockfest 2022 update. All right, we've got time for a quick Get Revelation Rockfest 2022 announcement. Get Revelation Rockfest Music and Arts Festival 2022 is going to be taking place on Saturday, May 14th 
at the Hanahan Amphitheater in Charleston, South Carolina. This is going to be an all-day, all-ages event, and our headline band this year is Warriors of Light. And just before Warriors of Light takes the stage, we are going to have Miss Jenna Parr. Some of the opening acts this year include Zandria Cross, Nettie, Tricord, Red Calling, The Last Trumpet, armor of god it is going to be an all-day event and for those of you in charleston yes charleston's own ziggy is once again going to be taking the stage get those tickets now and until next week peace out and rock on lithoscry.com